the rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the very end of Romans, and maybe you're new to the Bible, and we just gave you one this morning perhaps, and page numbers will be in the bulletin, and you can find Romans. If you can't find it that way, table of contents. But trust me, we're going to be in Romans this morning, and you'll want to be with the rest of us, and it'll be worth finding. I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of Romans, I get to Romans 16 a lot like a uh, well, a lot like other New Testament books, I'm pretty much done. It could probably end after chapter 15. Uh, sometimes I think it could end after chapter 14, and uh, on and on it goes. I don't want to see a show of hands, but more than likely, most of you who've read the Bible several times or read Romans several times have actually read it and skipped chapter 16. I'm sure I probably have, because what's in chapter 16? Chapter 16 is just a bunch of names and uh, people whose names I have a hard time pronouncing, not really sure, sure who these people are, what's the point, right? And yet someone, a Bible scholar, has actually said that they think Romans 16 might be one of the most significant chapters in the whole New Testament. One of the most significant chapters in the whole New Testament? I could see Romans 1, Romans 3. I would pretty much vote for Romans 3, I think. Uh, Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 8. In one sense, anything but Romans 16. Why would someone, why would a learned person suggest that it might be one of the most significant chapters? Well, I think the reason is because in Romans 16, Unlike any other chapter in the Bible, you see this wedding. You see all of this Roman stuff, this profound, deep, amazing outlining of how Christ redeems sinners. You know, this, this stuff that's worthy to be called the book of Romans. And you see it wedded together with men, women, families, all different kinds of people. You see theology, in summary, theology with life. And it does it in an amazing way, in an amazingly diverse way. And so I think that's it. That, that's why someone would go on record as saying, I might just vote for it being the most significant. And so we're going to focus on some things like that this morning as we work through this list of 20-some, over 25 names and all these different relationship complexities. And then what we're going to do is work through it with some commentary along the way, kind of the spade work. And then at the end, talk about some of the conclusions, some of the ramifications, some of the things that would cause us to say, it is significant. It really is important. And so that's where we're headed today, and that's what we're going to do, is seeing how this isn't just theory, this isn't just for uh, academicians or theologians, this Roman stuff, it's for people like you and people like me. So that's the plan. Sound okay? If not, you can vote with your feet, <laughs> some do, um, but that's what I'm going to do, even if it's just me and my family here for the next um, 40 minutes or so. Beginning in verse 1, we're just going to walk through it with some commentary so we can understand it, and then we're going to seek to draw some conclusions that would relate it to the most significant or one of the most instructive. Romans chapter 16, verses 1 to 16 to begin, and we read these words, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, if you want to be profound and sound like you know Greek, it would be phoibe, but it would be Phoebe to us, 
a name from Greek mythology, which will become significant later on. A servant, she is called. Uh, a servant of the church at Senecrea. So that's about eight miles from Corinth where Paul's writing. So she's a local, if you will. Verse 2, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. We'll pause there for a moment because she gets prime attention. She gets prime attention. She's at the beginning of the greeting list and the reason is probably, at least for starters, because she's probably the one who's going to bring Romans, the letter we call Romans, she's going to bring it to the Romans. She's close by. She's around Paul. She has a trip planned for Rome, apparently. She has the means to travel. She must have a certain amount of wealth. And so she's selected and identified as significant. Now remember, in the Bible, or not just in the Bible, but Christians are all supposed to be servants, right? Ephesians chapter 4 would teach us that. Christians are supposed to serve. But here we have this woman, Phoebe. She is selected out. She is identified as a servant. She must have been some kind of servant. She's a model servant. And he starts with her, probably delivering the letter. And isn't it interesting that he basically says, do whatever she needs. You take care of her. And then isn't it interesting that basically he explains why that's to be. So he says, whatever she may need from you in verse 2, for she has been a patron. She's a patron saint in the biblical sense, not the traditional sense. A patron of many and of myself as well. A patron is somebody from what we know from the culture and from languages is someone who has the, the wealth, has the influence, has the means culturally to help people who are new, who need help. For example, you're a traveler and you come to her region, her town, and you're a Christian. What does Phoebe have a reputation for doing? She has a reputation of making sure you get taken care of, that you have a place to stay, that if there's any issues with the governing authorities, those issues are settled. In God's providence, he has this woman get saved, and she's a woman of influence. She's a woman who has means, and she's connected well enough to be able to be a great blessing to believers who are in her region. Paul, so much so, says she was this to me. She was a patron to me. So you need to treat her the way, if you will, she's treated other people. You need to bless her the way she's been a great blessing to other people. So with that in mind, I think we're ready to keep moving through this. And so let's do that now. Beginning in verse 3, here are all the, the greetings. Greet Prisca. I almost said Priscilla, rightly so, because her name is Priscilla. Sometimes she's called Prisca, just a derivative of her name. Greet Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And we could learn about them if we turn to Acts 18, multiple places. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. They have been partnered with Paul in the past in ministry, and now they're in Rome. And so he says, greet them. They're my partners in the gospel. They're my fellow workers, which is gospel partnership talk. So make sure you greet them for me. They're, they're, they're close associates and ministry friends. Notice how close they are and how much they love Paul. Verse 4, who risked their necks for my life maybe referring to the riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. But either way, they're so committed to me, they're so committed to the gospel cause that I'm committed to, therefore they're so committed to Jesus Christ, I need to make sure you greet them. 
They're special people in my heart and in my life. Then he says, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Maybe because Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila had this reputation for doing significant ministry amongst the Gentiles. No doubt they did. Or what he might mean by it is, all the churches of the Gentiles should give them thanks because they risked their necks for me to keep mine. Because if it weren't for what they did, according to God's providence, I wouldn't be alive. And I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. We might put it in these terms. We should be thankful for Priscilla and Aquila because if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have Romans. Okay? They were willing to put their, their necks on the line, so to speak, to save Paul's neck. So he's greeting them. Verse 5, greet also the church in their house. So apparently they had wealth enough to have a, a home where the church could meet. So it must have been of some kind of size. And they must have had some kind of wealth to be the kind of travelers they were and to have a church in their home. Before we move on, just, just to point out, I hope what's obvious, but I'm going to take the opportunity to do it. Um, please don't use verses like this to justify doing home church. It's probably not the idea. That was just me being nice. It's not the idea, okay? Um, because in the church, Paul is going to talk about in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, you've got officers who oversee. You've apparently got enough believers where you've got enough diversity of giftedness where you can have a complete body, if you will, for maturity. So just remember, just be, be careful of how you use the Bible. Yes, churches were in homes, but it wasn't home church, okay? They met in homes. You just have to remember that because sometimes these verses get used for things like that. Not, not with any of you, but I'm just trying to equip you so you can help counsel your friends. <laughs> okay, let's keep moving. Um, verse 5 goes on to say, Greet my beloved Apainetus. Uh, Greek would be Apinatos would be the right way to say it, who was the first convert of Christ in Asia, which would be modern Turkey. Greet Mary. Now we have a common Jewish name. We've had a lot of, of pagan names. And now we have Greet Mary, common, common Jewish name, who has worked hard for you. And these names are going to become important when we draw conclusions. We've got Gentile names. We've got women. We've got men. We've got Jewish names. So take special note of all the amazing diversity here because it becomes a significant part of his argument and we'll talk about that at the end. Maybe now's a good time too just to make the observation from verse 6. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Now maybe Paul and this particular Mary had crossed paths somewhere just like Priscilla and Aquila but we don't know that. Remember Paul's never been to Rome. He keeps wanting to go to Rome, but he knows enough about this lady. She's some kind of servant. Mary, who has worked hard for you. You get this idea throughout this whole thing that he really cares about these people. He really loves these people because Christ has loved them and they've experienced the same saving grace that he has. And there's a genuine kind of love and unity going on, even with people that for sure some of them, if not most of them, he's never even laid eyes on. So there's this great gospel unity, which we'll talk about, but I'm kind of wanting to help set you up for it a little bit as we go. Then we come to verse 7. Greet Andronicus, 
It's a Greek name, but he's going to define him as a kinsman in a second, which means he's a Jew. So he's a Hellenistic Jew. So now we have a different kind of Jew. And Junia or Junius, if it's feminine. And if it's so, then it would be husband and wife, perhaps. And they're my kinsmen, so they're Jews. But they're not just any kind of Jews. In fact, seeing the diversity even more. They're Gentiles who are converted Jews. And my fellow prisoners, again, for the cause of Christ, no doubt, in the gospel. They, were, they, are, all, they are well known to all the apostles, or to the apostles it is. And they were in Christ before me. So these people are well known, probably because of their commitment to Christ, because they're even called uh, fellow prisoners. They're, they're so committed to Christ that the apostles talk about these people. This husband and wife team, it seems, who are committed followers of Christ, and they've been committed even before Paul was a Christian. Then 8 says, greet Ampliatus, which is a common slave name. My beloved in the Lord, greet Urbanus, or Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachus, or Stachus, greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Now, why do you think he says that? Greet the ones who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Well, it's either because he's not a Christian, but in his family that's well known, there are Christians. Or maybe it's because he's dead, but he's only greeting Christians. Some believe that this was the brother of King Herod Agrippa, who died in 48 or 49 AD. We can't know that for certain. But he's someone who's well known enough to have, if you belong to his family, people will know who you are. That becomes significant later too. Verse 11, greet my kinsman. Again, a fellow Jew. But look at the name. Herodian. Either a former servant of one of the Herods or maybe related to one of the Herods. But there's a connection there. That's significant. We'll talk about that. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. More pagan names. It may be that Narcissus is Tiberius Claudius Narcissus. This is what Mounts, the commentator and Greek scholar, says. Tiberius Claudius Narcissus, the famous freedman or former slave of the emperor Tiberius. History shows us he's a man of proverbial wealth who exercised great influence at the time of the emperor Claudius. We're going to get to the significance of these things, but I'm going to just give you the preview. Please be noticing radical diversity. Jews, Gentiles. Slaves, former slaves, influential people, people who are not influential. It just runs the gamut, and it becomes a significant point to be observed. Then verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Seems to be both women who have slave names. They might not be slaves anymore. They're perhaps freed, but these are ladies, former slaves. Because of their names, we might know that. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Some believe he's the son of Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus. We can't know that definitively. Also, his mother, who has, who has, been, a mother, uh, who has been a mother to me as well. It just makes me smile, because you know exactly what he's talking about. Even if you don't know exactly the details, you say... You know, somebody helped Mother Paul, and he appreciates that. It's all so personal and so real. Fourteen, greet a 
Asyncretus, Phlegin, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greek philologists, Julia, seems likely they might be husband and wife put together, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. With them. 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Which is kind of interesting. I'm not sure what Paul did on verse 16. Did he, did he send a, a mass email from Outlook? Um, or Gmail? Just to make sure this is legitimate. Do you guys all agree? Yes, we all agree. Okay, I can legitimately say they all greet you. Well, he didn't do that, we know. We, we have to guess and try to figure out how, how could he have said that? Maybe it's more of a literalistic kind of thing and there was some way that this actually was happening in a, in a formalized way. But it also may be, it seems more likely. This, this is the spirit of union and unity with the church at the time. These are the churches that Paul has established and planted, the churches in the region we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And he knows the gospel heartbeat that is there. He knows they're on the same page. They're supportive of Paul and the gospel. They're even supporting each other when collections are taken. And you know what? We are so united and so in this thing together. And he's reinforcing that to the Roman Christians. You might hear things out there. Here's how they're doing it. Here's how they're doing it. Did you hear? And all the gossip or whatever it might be. And he's making it clear we are unified in our commitment to Christ and the gospel as he's been unified in his commitment to us and redeeming us. And so there's common greeting. We're one family. We're together. And we'll talk more about that as well. We're going to skip 17 to 20 this morning because he takes a little bit of a left turn and deals with those who aren't servants of Christ. I I want to just spend a whole Sunday morning on that deals with false teachers in the church. But then he gets back onto the, onto the greeting script in verse 21. Now, okay, I've greeted those who are in Rome. Let me now tell you what's happening on my side. Timothy, my fellow worker, fellow gospel worker, context would have us to know, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sasapater, my kinsmen. Again, Jews, even if they have pagan names. 22, I, Tertius who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Paul didn't write Romans, but Paul did write Romans. Officially, Paul wrote Romans, and he puts his name to it. But like almost all of his writings, he uses the fancy word for it, is an amanuensis. He dictates. This is why sometimes at the end of the letter, Paul will say something like, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. Typically, he wasn't the one who was writing, but just to certify in case it's a scenario where people might doubt if it was really coming from Paul, which is not the case here. But at certain times, he will do that. So here, Tertius is even saying, I'm a Christian too. The amanuensis of the amanuensis. I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm in this too. I greet you as well. Gaius, verse 23, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Some 20-odd-plus greetings. And the one thing that's in common in all of it is they each have been personally reconciled to God through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the love abounds. And the unity is real. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's unity in the progress of the gospel. My fellow laborer, servant, using all of these descriptive terms because we are in this. We're in gospel ministry together even though we're different churches, different places, different sexes, different educational backgrounds, uh, different relationships to culture and society. That's what makes it profound. In one sense, you could say it's the diversity or the unity amidst all the radical diversity is what makes it profound. Because each of them has personally, again, experienced the theological, profound, saving work described in the earlier chapters of Romans. And now we see that it's for real people. Now let's principalize a bit. Now let's say, okay, what kind of lessons can we learn from this? Instead of just saying, well, the lesson is we don't know how to say these old names very well. Um, I mean, I've I've been to a a gathering one time, and that was kind of the icebreaker. Try to read Romans 16, and we're all going to laugh at you because you can't pronounce words. Well, I think it might have a more profound significance than that. (laughs) And we're talking about that this morning. Let's go ahead. I've got nine observations or conclusions. Uh, Certainly there are more to be made. Some will spend more time on than others. But when we walk away from a passage like this in context, what kind of lessons might we learn? Number one on my list, theology isn't just for theologians. Theology isn't just for theologians. How about according to our passage, theology is for people like Julia. Theology is for people like Rufus. Does anybody know anybody named Rufus? I know one guy. It's not just for theologians. And think about how significant that is. You start talking to people about the stuff in Romans, and and let's just even use let's even use synonyms. Okay, we're going to use different words that that people know and understand. You start talking about the basic things of Romans, and and so many times they're going to say, "What? What are you talking about?" That belongs in the academy. That, that, that's stuffy, irrelevant stuff for theologians. And what we need to remember is, it's, it's the gospel in detail, as Paul says so. We have to remember, this is, this is for Julia. <laughs> okay? This is for Rufus. This is for people like you and for people like me. It's vital that we know that. And sometimes it might mean we're going to roll up our sleeves because we've got a little bit of learning to do so we understand it better. We have to know that this is not just for the academy. Let's not downplay the academy. I'm thankful for profound theological thinkers and writers. But Romans, how about this, isn't supposed to be for the elite and educated. We've got slaves, former slaves. People who are Jews who know the Scriptures people who are Gentiles who don't. And he gives them Romans, and he wants them to be impacted by this letter. Really crucial that we remember that. For for your own sake as a person, you need to know the the theology of the gospel. For, For our sake as a church, we need to know the theology of the gospel so that we can know what we're supposed to proclaim, so that we can know what we must defend. For our own sake and for the glory of Christ, we've got to do this. We've got to own this. True or false? Everybody's a theologian. It's true. Some are good theologians and some are bad theologians. But everybody's a theologian. 
talking heads on TV who don't know much and say all the wrong things are theologians. Atheists are theologians because everyone says something about God even if they say, I don't believe in Him. That's a theological statement. And you are a theologian. A really bad one. Who's in denial because the Bible says that there's no such thing as an atheist. But anyway, that's a different sermon for a different time, Romans 1. We've got to remember that we want to think clearly, no matter what our education is, about who Jesus Christ is, what He did, why He had to do it. And remember, theology is not just for theologians. I love it that He doesn't dumb it down or change it or tweak it. He makes it crystal clear. Stop, let me ask you another question. Do, do, you, do you have to know theology to be saved? You do, right? It doesn't mean you have to have a PhD. It doesn't mean you have to take a special class. But you have to know theology to be saved. Theology is just the knowledge of God. You have to. You have to know something about who God is. You have to know something about how you've offended Him. You have to know, that's more theology. You have to know something about who Jesus Christ is. You have to know something about what Jesus Christ did. These are all theological things. You might not know all the vernacular and all the verbiage. So much so that you have to be a decent theologian. I mean, Paul wasn't okay in Galatians with people believing in one God who saves by grace through faith in Jesus. You say, isn't that right? Isn't that the gospel? You have to believe in one God who saves by grace through faith in Jesus? Well, that wasn't good enough because there were plenty of people who were saying that, but they weren't willing to say that it was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were monotheists, yes. They talked about grace. They believed in the resurrection. They were theologians, not even too bad of ones. But he says if it's not faith alone, they're anathema. They're damned because they aren't really believing in the one true God. They're not really believing in the one true Jesus who pays for your sins entirely and completely and it's not by works at all in any way, shape, or form. And you say, that sounds like a lot of theology to know just to get to heaven. Well, it's not that you have to know all the details and all the verbiage, but you do need to know that Jesus alone can save you. And you've got to trust in Him and Him alone. And so let's never, ever, ever downplay theology. Let's make sure that it's really, really important. And it doesn't mean we have to use words all the time like imputation. And it doesn't mean we have to talk about superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism and all kinds of things like that. It's kind of fun to talk about those things. And we do talk about those things because they are important, but not to be saved and not to understand Romans, right? At least in verbiage. You can tell what I like to talk about. Let's move on. <laughs> Number two, another observation. Gospel ministry is not just for professionals. This would relate to number one. Gospel ministry is not just for professionals. We clearly see that in this passage. If you, when you read Romans 16 and servant, serving, striving, all of this amazing ministry from all of these different kinds of people, and what you don't have is it's Paul, 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 Paul. You say, how did Paul do all this stuff? He didn't. <laughs> he did his part, but the, the stuff was done by Christians and he equipped and helped and pointed them in the right direction. Now, please don't misunderstand. There, there are the religious professionals, quote, unquote, even though we don't like the terms. 
let's not downplay the significance of the qualifications for overseers who need to oversee. Let's not downplay apostolic qualifications. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but let's remember that the bulk of ministry gets done by the Julius and the Rufuses. It gets done by people like you and people like me. And, and, and I want to use that as an opportunity to, to challenge you and to push you and to exhort you Who does the really significant ministry? Well, Paul certainly does. But he's not the only one. It's people like us. It's not just pastors. It's not just the people who write books that have theological degrees. It's people like us. Related to that, number three, biblical commendation comes to those laboring in the gospel cause. Biblical commendation, a better way to put it, would be commendation from God, approval from God, praise from God, affirmation from God comes to those who are laboring in the gospel cause. That should really motivate you and it should motivate me. Who does God say, yeah, I'm going to put their name in my book? The Bible. Well, people like Julia. (laughs) What did she do? Well, it seems like she was committed to the gospel and she did her part. He puts the names of husbands and wives in the book because they're committed to the gospel and they did their part. Phoebe. Names in the Bible. Don't know much about her, but she did her part for the progress of the gospel. And this isn't altogether true, but just for the sake of effect. Don't you want your name in the Bible? Unless you're false teachers who get named. That's a bummer. (laughs) Well, you can't have your name in the Bible because the canon is closed. Okay? You had to have your name submitted by 5 o'clock Eastern time on Friday. Uh, I mean, the canon's closed. You don't get your name in there. But we are to see these people as esteemed people. And who got their names in there? Sometimes false teachers, that's true. But in our chapter, the people that God approves and and holds up as an example to us are the people who are servants of Christ, servants of the gospel, selfless. You know what? They look like Christ. Reminds me of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that we should know, and we reference it a lot, that Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. The ultimate act of service, he says, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Well, because he's given his life as a ransom for us, because he's redeemed us, we belong to him, we try to imitate him. We're Christians, we're servants. So pastorally, I do want to exhort you, I want to challenge you and say, you do want your name in the Bible. You can't have it in there, I know, but you get the point. You want the commendation of God to say, you know what, Julia, good job, you are a servant And really, that's what it looks like, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed to serve and to further the progress of the gospel. You want God's affirmation in your life? Don't be the person who's take, 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 take. What's in it for me? How do I get my needs met? Your needs are going to get met. I have no doubt that these people had their needs met. But what ends up happening is the people who God is affirming are the people who are the give, I want to serve, not just serving in general either. There's a lot of good things out there. 
These are gospel servants. Read Romans 16 in the context of Romans as a whole. Even look at the verbiage that he's using. Okay, we've got a one-track mind, Roman church. What we're going to do is we're going to be all about the gospel. It's promotion. It's defense, learning, fleshing it out. That's the kind of church I want to pastor. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. What does God think? Well, God is affirming of, of servants. Number three. Now, that's number three. Number four. Gospel ministry isn't Lone Ranger ministry. We can do that one simply. Does anybody here not know who the Lone Ranger is? Somebody used Lone Ranger with me yesterday, somebody, a 20-something. And I said, have you ever seen the Lone Ranger? And she said, no. I said, well, at least you know what it means. And you should see it because it's the best show that's ever been on TV. No, I don't. I think it was on a Sunday, so I didn't get to watch it because I went to church. The bummer is I went to a bad church. It would have been better to watch The Lone Ranger. Anyway, at least it would have messed up my theology. <laughs> anyway, that was for free, by the way. I didn't even write that down. It just comes to me naturally. I'm so gifted. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Significant ministry is not Lone Ranger ministry. Paul is surrounded by people who are really carrying out the ministry he ends up being the one who's the coach. He's the one who's the help. But the ministry gets done by the body and bodies. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that what we don't want to do is to pay people to do religion for us. Paul was not about that. Biblical Christianity isn't that way. It's partnering together. It's what we do. Number five, gospel ministry is complementarian. There's the $25 word for the day. Gospel ministry is complementarian. And it is a word that's used in academics. It's a helpful word, though. I'll explain it if you don't use it frequently. Try it today at McDonald's. Um, gospel ministry is complementarian. You don't want to miss this in, this in this passage. It has to do with men and women. A I'm a complementarian in theological circles, okay? Because I believe that while the Bible has different roles for men and women in the church, even in the home, while those roles are real, read First Timothy, read Titus, while those roles are real, I'm a complementarian because I believe that we're equally saved, co-heirs in the kingdom of God, my wife and I, and all men and all women who are believers, we're equal in Christ, Galatians chapter 3, even if we have separate roles. So our roles are then to complement each other. A complementarian sees the differences, but says both are vital, crucial, important for life and ministry, complementing each other. Well, Paul in this passage is showing that he's a complementarian, Okay? He's not a chauvinist. We learn that he's not a feminist by reading Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. We know he's not a feminist, but he's not some sort of ugly person who is down on women. Okay? And you say, this is a controversial issue for you to bring up. Why are you bringing this up? Because this is a killer passage with us not being confused about it. He starts the chapter with Phoebe, who's going to deliver Romans, apparently. There's really no debate about that. And, and it's husband and wife and sisters all over the place. And we need to remember that. 
we need to make sure if we're, I'm going to say if we're biblical, we're complementarians. And so we want men to do ministry that's significant. We want women to do ministry that's significant. We can read Romans 16 and remember that that is what it looked like in the early church. And Paul is commending them strongly, gratefully. But that doesn't mean there aren't differences. So we're going to remember Romans 16, and we're going to remember Galatians 3, and we're going to remember Ephesians 5, and we're going to remember 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to remember Titus chapter 2. But sometimes when you say, oh, I'm turned off by feminism, I'm going to run over here. And then you become unbiblical on another side of things. And the great thing about Romans 16 is it brings us back over here. God's intention, God's design, complementing, not competing. It's a great, great text for that, I think. And we would want to take that to heart. Number six, the gospel and gospel ministry is inclusive. It's inclusive. It's inclusive in all the best senses. I kind of like to use loaded words like that that usually mean the opposite. Because so many times we have to say the gospel is exclusive. But we have to remember that the gospel is inclusive. Please don't miss this in this passage. It is oozing off the page. That's, a, that's an ugly word, oozing. What's a positive word? Dripping is still not so good. I don't know. You get the idea though, right? I mean, it's just, you don't say bleeding, that's bad too. Uh, it's a wonderful permeating aroma. How about that? <laughs> you can't miss it. It's meant to be seen. It is inclusive. And you have Jews, regular Jews. You have Hellenistic Jews. And in the day, they might have been considered with some slang term like, like a half-breed or some kind of negative thing. And, and, and that would be offensive. But you know what? That was real. Okay, so we've got Jews, we've got Hellenistic Jews, we've got Gentiles of all people who have Gentile pagan names. We have men, we have women. Uh, the slaves or ex-slaves are going to be the ones who probably are poor. And then we have people who work for the government as the city treasurer who are rich. You can't, you, you can't miss it in Romans 16. All different shapes, all different sizes. One gospel that unifies all of them and they do ministry together. They don't break up into market segments or uh, different niches. They're all together, striving together, even though they're really, really different. Remember that one reason why Paul might have written Romans, and most commentators think this, the catalyst that started it is the division that was going on in the church. So what does he do? He gives them the gospel again. They needed the gospel to understand that Christ is the Savior for the, starts with a W, Savior of the world. So many times that's what the Bible means by it. He's the Savior of Jew and Gentile, which includes everybody, because there are only two different kinds of people on the planet, Jew and Gentile. Paul fleshes that out in this chapter showing, you know what, it's even more diverse than that. There are certain kind of Jews and there are certain kind of Gentiles and it's all these amazing different kinds of people and we don't need a different gospel for the different kinds of people. We need the same gospel for all of these kinds of people and we don't need to divide up and we're going to have this kind of ministry because we're the only people that can get along with each other and that kind of ministry because we're the only people that need to get along with each other. You know what, Roman church, you're a diverse bunch. What you need again and again is the gospel. I love it, don't you? It's a great, great 
dose of medicine for us sometimes when we, we, we somehow think we need to divide up. It's not just a targeted group or demographic. It's very, very inclusive. Number seven, the gospel changes everything. Dot, 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 as I like to say for a pause, and doesn't. The gospel changes everything. And it doesn't. Here's what I mean. Relationship before God, it's totally changed. I was under the wrath of God, Romans 1, and now I'm not under the wrath of God based upon the atoning work of Jesus, based upon the perfect work of Christ and His life, death, and resurrection. Now I'm reconciled to God. That changes everything. I used to be prejudiced if I'm one of these Romans because I'm a Jew and I don't like Gentiles, and now I'm not anymore. It changes that perspective. It changes my standing before God. It changes my perspective. It changes everything. I totally want to go there. You died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ, Romans 6. That changes everything. You used to be a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. That changes everything. But Romans 16, I think, helps us to see, in one sense, it doesn't change anything. And here's what I mean by that, with a little shock value. What I mean by that is they still have pagan names. You don't get the idea that, oh, you used to work for the city treasurer and now you can't anymore because that's secular. You don't get that idea. But we get that idea in our heads sometimes. I mean, you look at the list and you say, greet my kinsman Herodian. Uh, he needs to change his name. He's a Christian now. To be associated with Herod? No. Hermes? Paganism. Apparently he kept the name. Uh, city treasurer? Apparently so. And the list could go on. And that's the sense I just want to remind, to be reminded and then to remind. All these pagan names, different things, all the baggage... They're still who they are. Now, if you want to change your name, go for it. Some people feel compelled to change their name when they become Christians, especially in other cultures. If you want to change your job because you need to now that you're a Christian, then you can. But you've got to know that he's not saying, now all of a sudden you have nothing to do with this world and this culture anymore. Christians have tried that. It's not been healthy, it's not been good, and it's, there's no biblical precedent for it. Just as an aside, I remember one time being somewhere and I, I met John Owen. How many of you know who John Owen? You know who John Owen is? The most prolific Puritan writer of what, 16, in the 1600s, 1700s? John Owen. I mean, amazing, amazing. And I met like a Chipotle in Minneapolis, I think. Desiring God conference or something. And there's this guy with, with dark colored skin, dark hair. Standing there with his name badge on, John Owen. Protestant icon. I just bowed down. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I got my picture taken with John Owen to prove it. I've met John Owen before. I got something that none of you got. <laughs> it's called Gnosticism. I met John Owen and you didn't, so I'm smart. <laughs> Point illustrating, sometimes Christians are taught that if you become a Christian, you lose all former identity and you must now have your name be Peter, Paul, 
John, Phoebe. If you want to change your name, change your name. But here's evidence that you don't have to. Because some things stay the same. Now that you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you still are a citizen of this world. Acknowledging Caesar in your relationships, still working, still making maybe even a better impact because you keep the name Herod. But we're just surmising now. Number eight and nine go together. We can do them quickly. Unity is not a luxury. Unity is not a luxury. It it is just permeating this entire thing. I almost want to say it's unity at all costs. Unity no matter absolutely what. But we know that it's not that because he is going to take that little turn uh, in 17 and talk about those who are self-centered. We don't preach the true gospel. We don't unite with them. But apart from that, you see this unity, unity, unity. Striving. It's together. We're fellow workers. We're in this together. Unity, unity, unity. And then my last point would have to do with love, which would be related. Love for believers in gospel ministry are inseparable. Love for believers in gospel ministry are inseparable. And really, the unity and the love are inseparable. But when you want to argue with a Christian who is truly a Christian, not a false teacher and you're bugged at them, and you're bothered by them, and they've wronged you or done whatever it might be. Maybe they haven't actually wronged you. They just haven't been stroking you or whatever it is you're looking for. It might be good to read Romans 16. Diversity like crazy. And no doubt they had different likes, different dislikes, different cultural backgrounds they're bringing, different customs they're bringing, all different sorts of issues. Together, gospel, united, which we learned about in the profound nature of learning about the gospel in the early chapters. So we've got to remember that as we do ministry. How about this? I would suggest to you that the more you understand the gospel, I know this is true based upon the argument of Romans, the more you understand the gospel and as you keep remembering the gospel because you're prone to forget it, and the more you're involved in ministry that is about promoting and defending the gospel, the more you are likely to get along with other believers. Because what is your fixed vision? Your fixed vision is what Christ has done. Your fixed vision is what He's done for all different kinds of people. Your fixed vision now is promoting the glory of Christ. Your fixed vision now is promoting the gospel so that unbelievers can be reconciled to God. What you're all about is gospel, 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 gospel. And all of a sudden, somebody crosses you wrong or doesn't return a phone call or does something maybe even more significant and not trivial you're a million times more likely to be okay because it's not about that other stuff anyway. It's about Christ and His glory and His honor and the benefit of His people and the promotion and defense of the gospel. This love and gospel ministry and unity, they're all together and they're all the byproduct and the fruit of knowing and being clear on the gospel. So maybe maybe Romans 16 is one of the most, what did he say? Not profound, significant, strategic chapters in the New Testament. Because it reminds us that it's not just theory, it's not just academics, it's not just theology. It's real people who are really different, who are really together because of Christ and the gospel. 
that will help us to flourish. That will help us to think rightly. That will help us to worship rightly. That will help us to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, which gives the believer joy. That's what that will do. So don't forget Romans 16. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for a rich time together talking about the end of this book. And we're grateful for it. We're grateful for these real people who no doubt were like us in some ways, not like us in other ways. But it is a great example to us for people who, of people who are sold out to the gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here today. That they wouldn't assume the gospel and thereby forget the gospel, but it would be at the forefront of our thinking, and it would help us to get along with each other, that we would find ourselves wanting to promote Christ in His glory and not other things, but that we would love each other. We would love each other in Christ for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.